0: I hope you are all doing well this morning. Yes, some of you are. Some of you aren't sure yet. We'll get around to you by the end. Um, <clears throat> it has been it has been a long week, um, not because I've been terribly busy with things here, uh, but just because we've been terribly busy with life. Um, there's been a lot of stuff. I don't know if If you don't know this, but we've been very busy in my household, and so um, this has been a week of sort of roller coaster emotions for my kids, for my wife and I. We have been uh, very sad this past week. Um, You know, we left a lot of good friends in Louisville that we we miss quite a bit. Um, We hear from them, and it's much different in this day and age than it would have been, you know, even 20, 25 years ago, but we still miss them. We miss their presence. We miss knowing that we won't see them again um, soon. That being said, we're also very joyful. We, we get to come here. We get to come home. Uh, this is where we grew up. This is what we've always considered home. None of my children were raised in Midland or Bay City or Saginaw, and yet we've always considered them to be of northern stock. Um, so, my son was born in Tennessee and he was always, he's he is a sweater and so he is destined for the North. There's only one place that he really needs to be and that is in the North. So, we have always kind of considered our kids to be of Michigan stock, even though uh, two of them were born in Kentucky, one in Tennessee. Um, We are very thankful to be home, and not just to be home around family, but to also be back into a a church. And for me personally, uh, and selfishly, to be in a ministerial position where I can pastor and proclaim the word of God. That is something that I long for and desire, and so we are joyful for that. We are joyful to to gather with you and to do ministry in Bay City, to do ministry in the Tri-Cities, to preach God's word and to take his His son's great name to the nations. We are grateful for those things. We are joyful in them. We were exasperated as the closing of our house kept getting put off. Um, we We had... All of you so graciously lined up, so many of you to help on Saturday, and then we had to tell you, no, nah, no, thanks. Um, we don't want you around anyway. So, and then we got pushed off to Tuesday, and then you guys all showed up again, and it's just been, it's been exhausting—not only exasperated, but exhausting. But we have been more than anything else. We've been thankful. We are thankful to be here. We're thankful to have a house to live in. We are thankful. That this church was so gracious, not only to call us into the ministry here, but to be so gracious and how you have approached us so far with love and kindness and prayer and support. We are thankful. And so it is a a good thing that we go to God's word today to think about what it means to be thankful. We're going to go to the book of Colossians and we will be starting a series through the book of Colossians um, not because I was thankful and because then Paul talks about thankfulness and so I said, ah, that seems like a good place to go. Um, although that would be fine. It's still a book of the Bible and we can do that too. Um, but more because I think that the book of Colossians really catches for me Paul's desires for not only the Colossian church, but for all of his churches and it mirrors what I would like to be my desire for you in this church and what I hope your desire is for me. The reason why I wanted to go to the book of Colossians is just because it's a very rich book filled with joy and happiness as Paul has heard the good news about what has happened in Colossae. Now there are many scholars, if you go through the book of Colossians, who think that what Paul's actually writing this for is because there's been heresies that have built up, that, that there have been problems that have come to, to light and Epaphras, who was kind of the lead pastor in these areas, has gone to Paul to ask for his help. And so as Paul has met with Epaphras, Epaphras said, hey, listen, Now, there's good news. We, we've got some faithful communities growing up, but there's all these problems. And, and if you go to chapter two, which is really the center point of the problems, there are problems with philosophy that they are being led astray by vain philosophies. There are these calendar rituals, new moons and Sabbaths, which people seem to be drawn away by. Asceticism, this, this denial of what God has provided as good things for the body, that if you, the thinking goes, if you deny those good things, then you can be more holy before God, because by denying them, you deny the the lusts of the flesh, and even things like angel worship. And scholars have looked at this and they said, well, listen, it's clear that there's problems that have have been bubbling up in Colossae. These problems are why Paul is is writing the letters, or writing this letter. But I don't think that's the case. I think that everything was good in Colossae. I think that everything was going really well for the Church of the Colossians and in Laodicea. I think that what Paul is doing with those verses is writing to warn them. He wants them to make sure that they are, if we were to use sort of a mixed passage, people of the good soil, right? So in Matthew 13, there's the parable of the sower and a man goes out sowing his seed and he throws some seed along and it falls on four different kinds of soil. One is very rocky, one is very thin, one is filled with thorns and thistles, and then another one is good soil. Now there's all kinds of ways that you can interpret that but one of the ways you can think through that is to think along the lines of what kind of soil are we? And, and Paul knows that they are not the hard soil. That Something has grown in them. But what he wants to make sure is that there is nothing that chokes the life out of them. That there aren't thorns and thistles among them. That they can get rid of those so that they can be the good soil where things will grow and, and the gospel will produce fruit in their lives. He wants to make sure that they are not just on thin soil so that when persecution comes up, they have no real roots. He is trying to get them to see where their roots are, to cling tightly to Christ. He wants them, in a sense, to walk, as 110 says, in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he wishes to present, as he says in 128, everyone mature in Christ. That is our goal. That is your goal in calling me, is to help you walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, to walk mature in Christ. That is what I want you to do when you look at me and I do things that are wrong. You're thankful for me now. You won't always be. I'm gonna mess up. And you're gonna need to, to set me straight so that you can say, listen, that is not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. We want all of us to to together work along the lines for this goal. So we will talk then through the book of Colossians over the next couple of months or however long it takes us to go. I do want to say before we begin, though, that as we are talking about something like Thanksgiving today, it's very easy to think that Thanksgiving is just something that we do. We give thanks to people as sort of a way that we can collectively kind of just be a working society, okay? So there's a way in which the niceties of society basically oil, the, the way that we interact with people so that we're not all jerks all the time, okay? So because we don't want to do that, we say, you should be thankful. You should tell your waiter, thank you, and give them a tip when they come and do stuff for you, right? So there's a way of, of talking about Thanksgiving that's like that, but I want you to know that Thanksgiving within Scripture is a very, very serious thing. This is not simply so that you can be in nice, polite company in society that you can show your face out in public, that's not why Paul wants people to be thankful. That's not why I want you to be thankful to God. One of the most important passages for Christians, and something that is cited so often, is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 18, where he talks about the wrath of God being revealed. And listen to what he says here, as we'll read verses 18 through 21. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. Okay, so he says, if you look outside, it's very obvious that if God exists, and, and it's clear that God does, he, he just says it is pretty clear that God exists. So if you look up to the stars in the heavens and you look at the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and all the beauty of the earth, he says, it's clear that God exists. You know two things from that. One, if God made all of it, then he can't be of that substance, okay? Notice Paul is not going very far off the reservation here. It's a pretty simple observation. If God made rocks and land and flowers and trees and rocks and snakes and all that good stuff and stars, he can't be that thing, okay? He has to be otherwise. And more than that, he has to be incredibly powerful, okay? They knew of the power of the earth back then. It was even more mysterious and more powerful to them for that. They knew of earthquakes. They knew of avalanches. They knew of floods. They knew of these things that they could not control. And Paul says, you know that God can't be of that stuff and he has to be more powerful than it. You can get that from creation. Where did they go wrong, he says they, in godlessness and unrighteousness, suppress the truth. But how did they suppress the truth? He says at the end of verse 20, as a result, they are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude or better, give thanks to him. The wrath of God is revealed because they suppressed the truth by not giving thanks to God. Because God is worthy of all thanks and all praise. So when we come together and we talk about something like thankfulness, being thankful to God, don't blow it off as just saying, well, what he wants us to do is be nice in public. Trust me, I want you to be nice in public, okay? Um, That's an important thing, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about giving thanks to God because it is a right response to God's goodness and his character. So let us go to the book of Colossians. Let us read the first eight verses. The book of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of our God. The first point that I would like to say about making thanks to God is we need to give thanks to God the Father. We need to give thanks to God the Father. It is a very interesting statement that Paul makes. He says, we always thank God... And then he specifies God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying that we shouldn't give thanks to Jesus, okay? So what he's saying is, I, I have heard of your faith. I've heard of the wonderful things that's happened here. And my immediate reaction to that is to give thanks to God, the Father. It's not to give thanks to God, the Son. And it's not because Jesus Christ is either not God or because he's not worthy Of honor and glory. Not only are we going to, in in a couple of weeks, probably three weeks, be reading verses 15 through 20, which are probably the most important and highest part of Christology in almost all of the New Testament, with the exception of what we're going to read here in just a second. So even Paul believes that Jesus Christ is God fully, full stop. There is no unsubstantial. Minor version of deity, like we talked about this morning in Sunday school, for those of you who are in there, of Jehovah's Witnesses, where Jesus is eh, it's, it's like kind of, eh, no, no, God, full stop. okay? So he is fully God, and he is worthy of all praise. So in Revelation 5, they sing this before the throne of God in Revelation 5. He's saying a new song. The elders, and the 24 creatures. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Let there be no doubt. Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship, your adoration, of everything that you have. But... We are very careless at times when we talk about God, to talk about God as though the Trinity is really more of a unity and not the differences in the Godhead. So we are very prone to saying, well, we we say thanks to God. When we say God, we, we mean God. We mean Father, Son, and Spirit. But Paul here is being very careful. Notice how he says this very specifically. He doesn't just say, we thank God. And then go on to list the things that he thanks God for. He says very clearly, I thank God who is the Father. and specifically the Father that he thinks here. Again, it's not because Jesus isn't God. It's not because he doesn't think that Jesus is worthy of being thanked. It's because that the role of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is differentiated throughout the entire New Testament. The role of the Father is one of plan and will. He has willed these things. He has worked these things. It is his plan that the Son then carries out on the earth. If you go back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, we read this. Notice how similar this language is to what Paul says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not blessed be God and the Lord Jesus Christ, not Blessed be God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, but blessed be the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So specifically, the Father, and why? He has blessed us in, with excuse me, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That is Paul says, blessed be God who has laid out before all time began what was going to happen, what should happen, and what will happen through his son. When he looks at the the Colossian believers, what he is seeing is the fulfillment of the plan of God from eternity past. So when he says, I I hear of your faith and I want to thank God for it, he says, I specifically thank God the Father because it is his plan that is coming to fruition. It is his plan that is being worked out. The securing of salvation and the application of it are, the, are the, the parts of the plan that are left over to the Son and the Spirit equally of God, but differentiated from God. In other words, this is, it's like one of those huge rube goldbergs. You've seen those like contraptions, right? They, they have a very simple task to perform and you perform it in the most unobvious way that you possibly can okay? So you've got, you know, balls rolling down little slopes, and then they hit a match, and the match burns a rope, and something else happens, and eventually, you know, the ball tips over in the cup, and you're done. So it's a really unobvious way to do a very simple thing. Now, clearly, please understand how analogies work, the plan of God is not like that. But what he is saying is, he's saying, listen, when I hear that faith has come, the gospel has come, and it's making inroads in Colossae, Paul, I think, is implying, I am I'm seeing the unraveling of the plan of God from the beginning of time. This is, this is the ball tipping over in the cup. This is the end of it. God, God moved all of history to lead you here, to lead the gospel to the Colossians. All of it is his working out of his plan. It is a brilliant and worthwhile plan to thank God for. When he sits back and he looks at this, he says, man, thanks be to God for what he has done. Give thanks To God the Father for his plan of salvation. Secondly, give thanks to God for other believers. Give thanks to God for other believers. Not, please, please, not give thanks to God for other believers when they do stuff for you, okay? Now, you should definitely do that, okay? When people do nice things for you, again, not only is it socially acceptable, but also within the gospel, it is a really important thing that you say thank you. Listen, this is not hard, okay? All of you know this from the time you were young. It is right when people do nice things for you to say thank you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. What I am saying is that your thankfulness should go well beyond that. It's gotta go beyond that. If your thankfulness for one another is entrapped in what everyone else does for you, there will come a time when you will stop being thankful for one of two reasons. One, because that person or those people have stopped doing nice things for you because of any of a number of reasons that don't have anything to do with sin. Because they're busy. Because they don't have the financial resources to do what they were doing for you before. Because there are other people with greater needs and they've spent time and money helping them. Who knows why? Perhaps it's just slipped their mind. But if it's always a response to what you get from people, your thankfulness to God will dry up. And secondly, even if they continue in it, it turns very quickly from thankfulness into I was owed that. It's very, very quick to do that. Notice what Paul says here. He says, I thank God. I always thank God when we pray for you since, since when I heard. So he says, when I pray, when I pray to God and the Colossian people come to my mind, I thank God for them since the moment that I heard of their faith. Paul is very clear. He has never seen the Colossians. He has no idea who they are. None. Not only is all the news coming to him secondhand, he says, I've heard, I've heard. He never says, I've seen. He has no firsthand evidence of this. In two one, he says specifically, I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. There is no indication in this letter that Paul has ever received anything from the Colossians. Not one thing. Not a cent of missionary money. Not, he doesn't say thank you for your prayers. He doesn't say thank you for any of that. Now, he does that in, in times. You go back, you can look on the very next page, I'm back on the book of Philippians. And in, in Philippians, when he is in jail, the Philippians send him things. And he has a very extended session, section saying, you know, thanks. I, that was, it's not that I needed it. I'm content. But I really appreciate the fact that you sent me this. This was helpful to me. But he doesn't do that in the Colossians. What he is thankful for is not for the Colossians to have done stuff for him. He is thankful for the Colossians themselves, in and of themselves, with nothing else. He is specifically thankful for them because of three things, their faith, their love, and their hope. He says, when we heard, this is what sparked his thanksgiving, when we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That faith is more than just believing in facts. It doesn't mean that Epaphras came and said, okay, so here's a handful of things that you're going to need to get down, and we're going to test you on it later in the week, and if you pass the test, then, you know, you, you kind of pass. We'll put a stamp on your hand, and you're into the club. That's not what he says, and that's not what the gospel is, and that's not what belief is. Now, we, we sometimes treat belief like that, especially the word believe. Do you believe this doesn't mean anything more than do you think that these set of facts are true, and that's clearly not what Paul means when he says faith. It certainly isn't what the New Testament means when it talks about faith. Very famously in James, when James is talking about faith and works, and faith without works is dead, he talks about demons, and he says, even the demons believe. You say that God is one, even the demons believe that, and shudder. Now listen, if it's just about understanding facts, I'm going to tell you right now, the demons understand the facts of the gospel better than you or I ever will, as far as a checklist of things go. They were there. They saw the fall. They saw redemption. They saw him bleed on the cross, and they saw him get up out of the grave. They have seen 2,000 years of church history and the working out of the gospel. They know. They know. But they don't believe in the sense that Paul is speaking of. They cannot, and they have not, anyone to trust in, but we do. When Paul says you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is more of a trust that they have put all of their eggs in his basket, so to speak. They, they have hitched their ride to him. He is everything to them. They believe and they trust in him and him alone. Secondly, the love that you have for all of the saints, he says. Not much is mentioned really about this. We don't get an indication of what exactly this is, but no doubt that that love was taxing on them. After all, he didn't say, I've heard that you feel really attached to all the saints. But of the fact that Epaphras comes to Paul in prison and says, I need to talk to you about this great thing that's happened at Colossae, not only do they believe, but they have love as well. Listen, this is not a secondary thing. So people want to compare Paul and James all the time. Let's do that. Let's compare Paul and James. James says, faith without works is dead. And Paul says, not only did we hear that you believed, but you also have love for the saints. These two things are, are part and parcel. Love is not, works do not grant you salvation, but I'm going to tell you, works, works, loving the saints, are a signpost of your salvation. If you do not love the saints, if you do not love people, if you are not working hard to demonstrate the goodness of God and how you live your life, You are missing a clear signpost of your salvation and you should begin to do some real introspective work as to whether or not the gospel has gotten a hold of your life. He says, I have heard of your love. And then we get this very weird statement. Since, he says, we've always thanked God, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because. So their faith And their love are pushed forward. They are propelled forward by the hope laid up for them in heaven. So it is the hope that they have of heaven that has pushed forward their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for the saints. What does that mean? What kind of hope is this? In Hebrews 13, 14, the author of Hebrews says, For here we do not have an enduring city, talking about the earth. We don't have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one which is to come. This sounds a lot like what he said earlier about Moses in 11, chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, when he says, By faith, Moses stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God, most importantly in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, Kept for you in heaven. Notice all that language sounds so familiar. An inheritance kept for you in heaven. Peter says, that is exactly, that is exactly the same thing that Peter says. It is kept for you in heaven, this hope. This hope is an inheritance that is incorruptible. It is a wealth and a richness that cannot be taken away. During the first century, the gospel spread most often to people who were poor and oppressed. There were people like Lydia, who clearly, being a, a, you know, a cloth salesman, she probably had a decent amount of money. There's good instances that we can pick out people who seem to be wealthy, who have turned and followed Jesus, but the vast majority of the people who have turned to follow Jesus are of the poor. They are the poor, and they are the poor. One of the reasons why is because they know more than anyone that this world has nothing for them. They look at this world and everything they have rusts or molds, it rots away, it's gone. And so when the word of the gospel comes to them and says, not only does God forgive your sins in Jesus Christ, but because Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave, we are guaranteed an inheritance that is imperishable and incorruptible. That is a hope for something that this world can never, ever give them. That is the hope. They say, well, how do we have that? How can we get an inheritance that won't ever corrode? How can we have houses that won't break down? How can we have health that will never deteriorate? How can we have life never ending? And the gospel says, through faith in Christ. And so, the hope of something better than this world pushes their faith in Christ because it is only in Christ that that incorruptible inheritance has been offered to them. And what's more, it also propels them to love one another with a love that is immensely sacrificial because they know very well that the things of this world are not what they are going to gain. It will all corrode and it will all wash away. It will never last. All of the good things of this world, and they are good. God has given us good things here. We need to understand that and we need to appreciate it. There are good things in this world. This world isn't all horrible, okay? No matter what CNN tells you, it's not all horrible. But even those good things of this world, while God has given them to us, he has given them to us for a time. And they will erode. They will corrode. They will wash away. Moths will get to them. Rust will get to it. Water will get to it. It will be destroyed. Lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can get at them. So it is the hope of an internal inheritance that pushes forward their faith and it pushes forward their love. Paul hears about this. He hears about these three things, this triad, faith, hope, and love. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, this famous love chapter, which everyone misappropriates by reading at weddings, but we'll deal with that another time. That famous love chapter, at the end of that, he says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. It is the same three that we find here. It is hope, your hope in something better than this world, which will propel you here. It will propel your faith in Jesus Christ, and it will propel propel your love for others. Paul says, I have heard of these things, these immensely important signposts of your faith, and I praise God because this is his will. This is his will. Third, give thanks to God for the gospel. it's not as though this change sort of happened overnight. In Colossians one twenty one, we read this. Paul, again, who has never met these people, says this. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The first part of that, especially verse 21, is the most important. You were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He says later in chapter 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How did God do that? Does God just kind of come down and whisper in their ear? Did God simply arrange the stars in a certain pattern that one day so that the horoscope came out and said, hey, God's favor. How does he do it? How does he change people from being hostile in mind, from being dead in trespasses and sin and making them alive again? And Paul's word is very clear. It is by the gospel. He says, of this hope, of this, you have heard before, the hope of, Of an imperishable inheritance which is coming to those who trust in Christ. You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you. It is the gospel that has come to them that provides the hope. It is the gospel that comes to them which impels them to believe in Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that comes to them that softens their hearts and takes those who are alienated and evil in mind and makes them into fellow believers in Jesus Christ. It did it for Paul. Paul is not writing this without some very deep knowledge of what he's talking about. Paul, the persecutor of the church, who had people hang on to his coat while, or he hung onto the coats while other people stoned Stephen. Paul, the one who wanted to kill everyone that he could find, who stood in his way, who was then confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and from that point on was never the same. It is the gospel, the proclamation of God's good favor in Jesus Christ that changes hearts. So what is the gospel? I'm going to tell you the foundation, the building block, the stone of the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins. That you are alienated and hostile in mind. When he writes that, he's not saying, I've met some Colossians before. You people are horrid, right? What he means by that is I've met people before and we're all rancid. So you can go back to Romans 3 and you can read that very famous passage about all have sinned and turned away from God. No one is righteous, no, not one. Paul lumps everyone in the same sphere. From the fall of Adam onwards, we are all alienated from God because we have all sinned against God. We do things that are wrong. Our minds are depraved and they crave the wrong things. Our bodies are in control of us and they ask us and they demand of us to do things that we know are wrong. And so we all deserve condemnation. And Jesus Christ by dying on the cross, has taken the wrath of God so that the wrath of God is no longer pointed at us, but it was pointed at Christ. And he has exhausted his wrath, so what is left for us is only peace and love and blessing and mercy from God. And we then, by his redeeming us, when we place faith in him, we are now a new creation, not prone to the frailties that we were before. It begins with the understanding that there is forgiveness for your sins but friends, that is not all. It cannot be all. There has to be more than just the forgiveness of sins. And I'm not trying to diminish that. Believe me, the groundwork, the framework, everything that comes after that is laid down by the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus Christ has brought you more than forgiveness. Okay? Not less than, but more than forgiveness. We know this for one. He's talked about the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. There is a promise that all of the bad stuff in the world is going to be righted again. We make my kids say, I'm sorry. And instead of saying it's okay, we really try to get them to say, I forgive you. To, to make sure that they know that there is a sense of which forgiveness has to be passed. That you don't, we say it's okay. Like it's sort of a blowing off thing when really you know, the punching is probably not okay. We probably shouldn't call it okay. So we, we make them say, I forgive you. But notice what that forgiveness doesn't do. If one of my kids hits the other one, that forgiveness doesn't make the pain go away. That forgiveness doesn't make the pain right. That forgiveness doesn't mean that it's not going to happen again in the future. That forgiveness doesn't mean that everything won't fall to pot again tomorrow. Forgiveness cannot secure for you everything you want. The gospel is more than forgiveness. The gospel is the sure and secure sign that God is remaking everything again. That there will be a hope laid up for you in heaven where there will be no more tears, where there will be no more heartache, where there will be no more difficulties, where you will be before God blameless and holy, as Paul says. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ has won victory over all that is wrong in this world, and he is then established as the king over all things, and he will remake everything everything good and true and pure again. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the gospel that has come to us. That is the gospel that has come to the Colossians. That is a good thing, and God deserves praise for the gospel. Thank God for the gospel. And finally, give thanks to God for the laborers. Give thanks to God for the laborers. Paul here singles out Epaphras. He says, the word of the gospel, the word of truth has come to you. You've heard about it in verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Not only has God deemed by his will that the way the gospel would come to people or the way that his His forgiveness would come to people. His will would be worked out in people is by the gospel, but that that gospel will also come by people. You you are not a bystander in all this. This isn't a play that is going on around you. You don't see God's work happening in the world and say, thank you, God, for that. God says, yes, okay, thank me for that, but realize I have redeemed you for a part in that. You are Part and parcels of taking the gospel to the nations. Epaphras was probably a man who was just saved by Paul. That's how he probably knew Paul. We don't know that exactly, but that's probably true. He knew Paul, and that's why he went to visit him. But Paul didn't take the gospel to the Colossians. The gospel didn't fall out of airplanes in these little packets, okay? Okay. God didn't write the gospel across the sky, and he certainly didn't write it in the stars. Paul might be very clear. They are without excuse when they deny God because of creation, but at no point in time do we ever think that creation leads you to a right understanding of the creator, that creation leads you to a full and and unending understanding of what the gospel is. The gospel has to be brought to people, and you are the means by which God will bring it to them. Just as Epaphras was the means that God was going to bring the gospel that had never been there to the Laodiceans and the Colossians. It was Epaphras who took them there. Famously, William Carey, who was the father of modern missions, when he wanted to go to India, he stood up in his Baptist convention, his General Baptist convention in England back in the 1800s, and he said, I want to go to India to be a missionary. And the elder of that meeting looked at young William Carey and said, hey, when God wants to convert the heathens, he will do it without consulting you or me. That's flat out wrong. God does want to convert the heathens. And he is consulting you. Not for your advice. He is consulting you to go. He is saying, you are the laborers being sent out into the field. Jesus says this in Luke um ten two, the harvest is abundant. There are people to be reaped for God out there. There are hearts and minds to be changed. There are things, there are there are people who are receptive to the gospel in Bay City and Saginaw and Midland. There are people who are receptive to it in Santos, Brazil, and in Paris, France. There are people who are receptive to it who need to hear it. He says the harvest is abundant, but the workers, the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus says, This is where your heart ought to be. If we are like Paul and we want to see everyone presented mature and perfect in Jesus Christ, walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, then we ought to be praying not only for workers to go out, but by God, when workers go out, we ought to be giving him thanks for it. We ought to be telling him thank you for missionaries who put their families in difficult situations, who put their own lives at risk so that the gospel might go to people who otherwise would never have a chance, to people who minister for decades with no fruit at all, none. It is a bare and dry land. And they press forward their lives. We ought to thank God for those people never ending to thank God for the workers that he has sent out into the harvest. And if we are going to thank God for sending those workers out to the harvest, we ourselves ought to do the same. Remember Epaphras was simply one of them. He was one of them. In England I think they would call him a normal bloke. Okay? He was just a normal guy. We know nothing about him other than he is a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. He wasn't an apostle but he was a Christian, and therefore he was called to make disciples. Let's give thanks to God for the laborers. Crossway, I am thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be back in Midland Bay City and Saginaw. I am thankful to be back in the Tri-Cities. I am thankful to be back in the pulpit. I am thankful to be a full-time minister here to, to work with you, to help you, to guide you, to preach at you and to myself and to you and all that, whatever prepositions you want to put in there. I'm thankful for all of that. I'm thankful to be here. But before I was ever called to be here, before I knew of even an opening, God was very providential and allowing my family to come here. So several summers ago, you would have, if you showed up in the right weekend in August, you would have seen us here. You would have heard my kids. You would have heard my kids. And you would have known that there was somebody here and we would have said, hey, we're just here for a couple weeks. But we, unlike Paul, we saw, not only heard through friends of your faith and your love for the saints, but we saw it. We saw it. We knew that you were a a church that was dedicated to the things of God, to the things of the gospel, that you were dedicated to glorifying Christ in all that you did, that you were dedicated not only to proclaiming him, but also to proclaiming him to yourself so that repentance was a chief part of how you live your lives. We have thanked God for you, and I know I know we are thankful to be here and so many of you have said, we thank God for my family to be here. Friends, let's thank God together for what he is doing and strive all the more to present one another mature and perfect in Christ so that the gospel will extend to all nations, not only to the Tri-City area, but through all of the world thanks to the efforts of his people who struggle hard with the power that God provides to them so that more people can know the thankfulness that we know here. Let us pray. Father God, your plan was unfathomable from the beginning of time that you have laid out every leaf that falls from the tree, every hair that falls from my head. Every atom and electron to every galaxy in existence, Father, you hold in the palm of your hand and you control from the beginning of time you have willed that they go where they go and they stop where they stop. Father, how amazing is it that that will includes us? That that will includes this moment? That will includes every person that the gospel has been presented to who has trusted and believed in Jesus Christ? Father, we stand in amazement as we watch you work in the world And Father, we give you praise for it. Through the work of your Son and the moving of your Spirit and power, we give thanks to you. For you alone are God and you alone are worthy of praise. We ask now as we stand to sing that you will bless our voices, that you will accept our praises. For it is in Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen.